You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Join Bloomberg in San Francisco or virtually on May 7th for The Future Investor, Data-Powered Transformations. This 2024 event series will examine how data is not only playing a pivotal role in investment decisions, but serves as a driving force behind the construction of innovative, investable enterprises. This series is proudly sponsored by Invesco QQQ. Register at BloombergLive.com slash futureinvestor slash radio. Energy and air pollution will be one of the top five issues for the general election. We talk about Putin being in control. He's not ready. It's the various factions under him, and it suits them to have him at the front. You're trying to save for a house deposit, and you'd have to save up some crazy amount of money. How on earth are you going to do that if a pint is £7? There's certain key things that we want from India, and there's certain key things that they want from us. Hello, you're listening to Bloomberg UK Politics. I'm Caroline Hepke. I'm Lizzie Burden. And I'm Stephen Carroll. Welcome to the programme. We're all very jealous of Lizzie today because she's had a glamorous night out. Lizzie, where have you been? I'm not feeling glamorous. I'm, I, <laughs> as I've told you many times, I've probably told you too many times, I don't drink. Someone said that I'm like the vegan of the drinking world. I just can't stop going on about it. But yes, I was at the Westminster Correspondents' Dinner last night. And Is the it Prime like Minister, the White House Correspondents' Dinner? Well, it's inspired by the White House Correspondents' Dinner. Is it as funny? It was it was Rishi Sunak's funniest speech I've ever heard. There was okay. lots of applause. There was lots of laughter. I was going to say the other comparison with the Washington dinner is apparently, I haven't been to it, uh, the, the security isn't as tight and as scary as it, it would be around POTUS. But there you are. The jokes were wonderful. Uh, Rishi Sunak was laying into Boris Johnson, Liz Truss and Matt Hancock and all his recent reality mm-hmm. TV appearances. And then he was quite self-deprecating as well. He talked about his own dress sense, his own height and his own policy. Uh-huh. Well, listen, you need a bit of a reset then tomorrow, but only a swift one because then you and I and James Walcott, the rest of our lovely team, are going to be up um, in Manchester for Conservative Party Conference. Um, Not by train because there'll be train strikes no, happening. No, plane, which uh, is going to be tricky. What are we expecting then just in terms of policy manifesto? It's, it's going to be a really important one, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, short of a manifesto, this is where the two parties are going to lay out the land for the general election but it's likely to be you know a very different tone to this time last year when everything was falling apart for Liz Truss and this is Rishi Sunak's first um, party conference as prime minister there were jokes last night that it could also be his last well no so I haven't <laughs> been to a party conference so you'll have to educate me how much do you actually get to schmooze with important people at these events it depends how willing you brazen, are to brazen you are they are very late exactly. in the evening and go to the bars uh, yes. sacrifice sleep I uh, didn't realize there was a there was a big party that I didn't realise you had to have your name on the door for so I boldly <laughs> went to the front of the queue and then had to 
beg. I'm just going to tell you who it was. It was Joe Coburn at the BBC to help me out of the humiliation of being turned away at the door. And I got into this this wonderful night where Jacob Rees-Mogg was sipping from the champagne bottle and Liz Truss was doing a karaoke. Oh, yeah. Nice. It was a really strange year last year, though, wasn't it? Because at party conference this time last year, it was all about a lot of MPs not turning up or the kind of disarray of the Truss um, government. And so I wonder whether this time is going to be significantly better having said that if you look at the institute for government obviously the 47 mps who are standing down or said that they're going to stand down so actually there might maybe quite a few do more who miss i'm going to keep firing um super questions at you do, do you have a strategy for networking when you go to these things no do you have a strategy for networking yes. in real life oh, go on, caroline what's yours of course yeah no definitely you've got to well you, listening timing is really tricky but then look for all of the events and i don't go to that many sadly anymore because i get up so early in the morning flipping her hair (laughs) (laughs) only the good one i I turn down so many of the invitations that i get sadly no no keep them coming uh it's the fact that depending on what industry you are in Mm. i have learned uh in uh in some sometimes quite tricky circumstances, depending on what industry you are in, uh, that dictates the way that you exchange contact details with people. Now, MPs, it's basically WhatsApp or nothing. Okay. In other words, you get a lovely embossed business card um, and definitely mobile phone numbers. But if you're a tech nerd, they actually will scoff at a business card. The PRs, of course, have hunted anyone down on LinkedIn anyway, so they've already got your details. Yeah, so I, I'm not good at networking, and it's one of the things I find it really painful to do. And I actually, I read, that there's an Irish diplomat called Erica Lee who's been writing about this on LinkedIn recently and her, her key advice was go alone, go early because mm. then you'll get in there before anyone else and decide you're going to speak to three people. So you can speak to the host who you've already been introduced to, find somebody more senior than you and find someone more junior than you. And if okay. you do that, then you're kind of hitting, you can, and you can leave after half an hour. You know, you don't have an to Irish say goodbye. <laughs> no, um, there's one principle that I think I'm going to off the top of my head add to this, mm. which is keep the ball in your own court. You need to be the one who follows up and calls them. Make sure oh, they yeah. give yeah, you. Yeah, following you. ups. Yeah. Yeah. But get their number. Don't leave it to them to follow up with you. No, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, uh, friendliness and, and talking to people. Listen, most people always want to talk about either themselves or their projects. So I think well, it's important to around, ask the question. Lots of, lots of policy ideas I'm sure you'll be discussing with these people as well. Tell us about who you're going to be speaking to, Caroline. Uh, so we're going to be speaking to, well, some important backbench MPs. Obviously, uh, hopefully quite a good number of senior ministers as well, pollsters, plus the think tanks, because actually most of the days and days of gatherings are led by the think tanks who have panels with the different MPs and the, the, they're the ones that help to dictate policy and at least the policy discussion. So we'll have quite a few of them too. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to a conversation on trade and Brexit at the IPPR stage. That's with some of the shadow Labour ministers the, the week after next. What's the key question, Lizzie Burden? wants an answer to at this conference? Uh, well, from Labour, I want to know what's the positive case to vote Labour, not just why you shouldn't vote Tory. And for the Conservatives, I want to know when they're going to start showing some ambition and not just giving us the stability uh, in the economy, which I'll give them credit to has been hard to deliver. You've got inflation coming down now. We're going to talk about it later. Growth, uh, 
getting a better, mm. more positive picture. But when are we going to see the big vision for the next decade and more than that ahead? Because Rishi Sunak's telling us that he's the man for the long term. Yeah, I, I totally agree. I think it's vision out of Rishi Sunak. It's also motivation. Can Rishi Sunak motivate all of these people who are already motivated to come to party conference? They're the ones that are going to be doing the heavy lifting for the campaign. But the other one, and it's very Bloomberg, it's obviously us donors. We've already, mm. you know, who's going to be funding the advertising and the big push from the party? One Tory donor's already backed out, you know, on the lookout for others and what they're going to be pledging. Yeah, well, join us bright and early on Monday morning for live coverage on Bloomberg Radio from 6am. But also, of course, your friendly podcast will be there too. We'll bring you special episodes from the Tory party conference from Monday. Something that may give the Prime Minister a boost going into party conference is the latest economic data on growth, in particular for the UK. The UK economy was 2% larger than previously thought in the second quarter of this year. It's also pushed the country up in terms of the rankings of post-COVID recovery. Joining us now to discuss is our senior UK economy reporter, Phil Aldrich. Good morning, Phil. Great to have you with us. So what do you think is actually behind this uh, improved picture for the UK economy? Um, well, a couple of things is there's um, been an upgrade in business investment that which stretches back um, and back to 1997 actually because um, uh, there's been these these long-term revisions um, and uh, and re- more recently there's been an upgrade in business investment there's also been a better consumption there's been a sort of the balance of growth has shifted a bit towards households so uh, households once again look like they're, 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 they're you know um, faring, uh, managing their way through the cost of living crisis um, with greater resilience than might be thought. This certainly isn't bad news for the Chancellor and the Prime Minister to be heading into Tory party conference with. But, Phil, is it really something that the government can claim credit for? Obviously, it's one of the government's top five priorities to grow the economy this year. Um, I mean, governments do have levers to pull. Um, uh, that to, to drive growth, they can they can spend loads of money where that picks growth up, and the, the, um, and they have been trying to sort of tinker around on business investment, trying trying to make the conditions in the UK better. But uh, you know a lot of that a lot of this data predated uh, these revisions predated um, efforts that sort of the, the Sunak uh, government has uh, made. Uh, I, I mean, I think over overall what what we were just looking at was a a a sort of more pessimistic outlook than the real picture. And so the ONS uh, has just gone back and looked at the hard the hard data, which turned out to be a little bit rosier than the, the, than the sort of early uh, softer estim- um, survey data that it was using. And so, the, so I mean, what, we, what we can say is that the, the economy just seems to be a little bit more robust than, than we had been presented with. Does that give us any indication, though, that things are going to be rosier for the rest of the year? I mean, obviously, this is data that looks into the past, but does it give us perspective view on where things are going to be in the next six months? It doesn't. It doesn't tell you that um, growth will be faster in future, um, but it does give you, or you know, give give the forecasters who are. You know, the Office for Budget Responsibility is the main forecaster because obviously it draws the fiscal um, numbers out. So the amount of money that Hunt will have to spend on tax cuts or whatever. But um, if we 
are now judged to be able to grow a little bit faster than had previously been estimated, that um, that might feed through into faster future growth. This will be a judgment, though, that the OBR will have to take. Um, and uh, if we do grow, if we are, dis if it, if they decide we are going to grow faster than than they thought, um, then that would give uh, us a bit more room for these tax cuts that the Tory party desperately want to, to deliver. Yeah, and on that point, I mean, how much can the Prime Minister and the Chancellor sort of crow about this? How much, you know, can, can they um, make hay with this sort of data, I suppose, given that as we go into Conservative Party conference, one of the things that most people think the general election is going to be fought on is the economy, is the cost of living. How much do you think this is likely to be able to boost the Prime Minister and the Chancellor and the view on, on the Tory handling of the economy? Well, there's a, I mean, the, the revisions are, are do give the government a better platform to say that you know things are not that bad here. Um, previously, we were the our recovery from the pandemic was the was the weakest of the, in the G7. Then there were some revisions um, a month ago, which put us as second to bottom, but above Germany. And now these figures have put us above France. So, you know, we are definitely middle of the pack for um, our, you know, the recovery up to date uh, from from, um, from COVID. Um, so, so, so you, I mean, I don't know whether you can crow about that, but what you can do is you can set aside the criticisms and that's, mm. so that just changes the narrative, which helps them. Um, so, I mean, that, that, that'll definitely be a better backdrop compared with the rather dreadful backdrop that they were potentially going into conference season with. So they're the fiscal implications. What about monetary? Because, of course, wheat growth was one of the reasons that the Bank of England held rates at the last meeting. Does this mean that maybe another hike is back on the table? Um, again, that's uh, the thing about um, these numbers is because they're backward looking, what they say is that the economy was stronger than previously thought. So while the bank was was forecast, was, while the bank was sort of uh, was raising rates a little bit more slowly than the Fed, for example, um, they were they were looking at an economy that they thought was was just a much more it was just growing more slowly so there was a bigger concern of the you know the the recession risk um what we now know is that basically we had a stronger growing economy we could have put rates up a, a bit faster like, you know i don't think it has any implications for the future trajectory of interest rates um it just tells us where where we are today which is you know the economy the economy is is slowing we are facing these particular interest rate driven um, sort of softening dynamics. Um, but uh, uh, but I don't think I don't think that the bank will look at these numbers and say, oh, well, th this this is definitely gives us a case for a rate rise. Where should we be looking next, Phil, for clues about where the economic prospects are going from here? Is it the next set of inflation figures? What what are the key things that you're watching out for as we're trying to get a picture of the trajectory for the UK economy? Yeah, so you're, you you want to know what is is inflation coming under control? Um, that if it is continues to show that it is, then then the, that that interest rate pressure can you know, on the economy will lessen. Um, how is how's you know, the GDP numbers? What are they gonna 
what are they going to say? Um, uh, the uh, I mean, those are the, I think those are the key moving parts. Uh, the labour market is probably the most important, actually, because the unemployment rate, if the unemployment rate starts starts really escalating. Um, I was speaking to an economist recently who was, who, who was saying unemployment never moves slowly. You know, you hit you hit, you you hit a you hit a, a sort of cliff edge, and then you know people just lose their jobs in quite large numbers often. So when you when you do fall into sort of a recessionary unemployment situation, it is it it, it all it all happens very very rapidly. So you, you, the thing is, you want to stay off the precipice um, to avoid that happening. So the, you know if you if you start seeing a sort of faster pickup in unemployment, then you then you might start worrying. All right, our senior UK economy reporter, Phil Aldrich, across all the data, especially this morning's GDP. Thank you. Well, one of the things the government is hoping will boost economic growth in the future is artificial intelligence. The technology is being held aloft as a major opportunity for the UK economy. Case in point, the Deputy Prime Minister Oliver Dowden's writing about it in the Times newspaper today. He's calling for a new global agreement like the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty to regulate the technology, hoping discussions of that's going to happen at the UK government's AI summit later this year. We've got our technology editor, Nate Langton, with us for more on this. Nate, on your show on Bloomberg AI IRL, you talk to some of the key players in this rapidly evolving world. Where are we on where politicians are understanding what might change in this area and the sort of key issues they need to get their heads around? Well, the first thing is that nobody that I have spoken to or that we've really heard from in politics or in government necessarily know exactly how the technology has been working. And that's made it very difficult for them to figure out how it's going to work. And what makes that harder is that this technology, even though it's been around for decades, is advancing so quickly, more quickly than any previous tech that we've ever had to deal with, that it's just become this massive challenge to even figure out what's going to happen. And the, and the other side of that is that the tech companies are not necessarily doing the best job at explaining how the technology works, because a huge part of why AI is so powerful is that we don't actually know how part of it works. So it's kind of this really weird catch-22 that it's developing quickly, and we don't quite know how, and yet we need to know how in order to regulate how it develops. It's, it's, it's tricky. I don't envy the job. So if the idea of this AI summit in November in the UK is to come together as different nations and work out what the challenges are in terms of regulating AI, because they don't know what they are yet, isn't there a problem when it's moving so fast that they reach a conclusion and then, like driving a new car off the forecourt, it's completely redundant already? It is, but to be fair to tech, that's basically the way it always happens. Technology has always advanced more quickly than regulation. And you look at something, the best example I can give you is what happened with music piracy. You know, something like Napster in, in 1999 sort of completely changed how the world consumed music. And by the time it was regulated, we were already moving on and we were starting talking about streaming. So it, it's, it is difficult, but you have to try your best. And to be fair, Everyone is trying very, very hard to do it well and to not repeat the same mistake we made with social media, which is let it run amok, let people have a, you know, break things and uh, and then fix it later approach to it and say, you know what, we got things wrong with social media. 
we got things wrong with music piracy. Let's get it right with AI because it has the power to be far worse if we don't. Yeah, and so therefore you need to sort of come to some agreement over the broad principles of, of regulation, what, is, what you're going to regulate and how, which as you say is very, very difficult with this nascent developing technology. Just explain then why governments in this instance, and actually in all regulation, they need participation of the industry that's being regulated to some extent. But when it comes to AI, they need them a, a great deal more. They need access to their data, to their information, to their systems in order to actually evaluate it. Why is that different in this instance than in other industries? In in a way, it's this, well, certainly with other industries, it's it's harder because there is a lot of mechanical, let's say manufacturing, you know, we're talking about physical machines that it's relatively easy to go and look at. Same with, with nuclear inspections. You know, you can go to a facility and you can you can see it and you know the people who have made those components and you can check them too. With AI, because it's all software, it's incredibly difficult. That was also the case though with social media and the algorithms that power recommendations. You can still investigate those. With AI though, a lot of the way that these systems learn and develop, the developers themselves don't know exactly how they work. And that's kind of by design. So it's insanely hard to go in and validate them because what are you validating? Like, it, it, it's too difficult. You have to regulate based on how the technology is being used potentially. And that's one of the things that we're seeing coming out now is like, don't regulate the fact that the tech exists, regulate how it's being applied. And that's, at least to me, it seems like the smarter way of dealing with it. We're having this conversation in sort of very abstract terms about AI. I wonder, is there any sort of example you can give us of an area of this technology that, that could be regulated? What the sort of issue is, particularly, that regulators are worried about? Well, one of them is definitely going to be around uh, misinformation and disinformation and how that is handled because there is a immediately pressing need, not just because of the 2024 election in, in the US, but there is always somewhere some kind of democratic process going on. And we, we know very quickly when a system is going wrong, if it is surfacing misinformation and disinformation, uh, that could be stopped quickly and they can reverse engineer that potentially and figure out how to stop it happening again. Slightly further down the line, honestly, will be how it's integrated into cars, self-driving vehicles and um, autonomous systems that are going to hit our road and already are on the roads um, are going to need to work very well because lives are very immediately at stake if they get that wrong. That is something that they're going to have to work closely with automakers and the technology makers that make the components that go into those cars to make sure that when we start testing uh, self-driving vehicles much more closely, we know how to assess whether they're going to be safe or not. Now, you're really plugged into the AI world, not just on the business side, but on the policymaking side as well. The UK is making a real song and dance of this AI summit because they want to be the global leader here. But how is the world of AI seeing this effort? Are they taking the UK seriously? They are taking it seriously because they're, they're attending. You know, they're going to show up and the conversations are going to happen. But obviously, as we've seen in many, many other examples, a conversation doesn't necessarily change anything. Right now, a lot of people are looking at what Europe is doing and the European Union with the AI Act. Um, which is uh, seen as probably the most advanced proposition in terms of regulating AI. And I think some of the questions we will be asked, I say we, the UK at the summit will be asked, is how much of what the European Union is doing um, that we should also be doing? Is there something we should be doing better than that? Um, and I think that's going to be a particularly interesting one to follow. Mm. 
I mean, perhaps one of the best known uh, former UK politicians actually has made the leap into big tech, and that's Nick Clegg. And he's been on your show recently, AI IRL. You were talking to him. Do, do you have a clear idea of their thinking, obviously of Meta's thinking around AI, AI regulation, obviously one of the big players? Yeah, absolutely. One of the approaches that Meta has taken, which may surprise some people, is it's actually been pretty open about the technology that it's using with AI. It makes a lot of the research that it comes up with open source, which essentially is like saying, here are the workings, have a look and see what you think and deploy it in a way that can be measured. And Meta's approach has opened up discussion to say, well, if we can investigate how the technology's working and thinking, then it's easier for us to regulate. And that is technically true, but it also opens up the counter argument, which is if you show you're working, you're also allowing people to potentially say, well, you knew how it was going to work. So it's not our fault that it's been deployed in this way. And so the question is really around if it's open, is that good or does it actually make the problem worse? Are the companies like Meta setting themselves up also to frame the regulation in their favour? I mean, I wonder, you know, you reference the experience with social media. Are, are, is the industry prepared for an effort of regulation and prepared to try and influence it? Well, they hired a former deputy prime minister. Um, I think that tells you a lot about what it wants to do. And, it, and, and Meta hired uh, Nick Clegg not too long after the Cambridge Analytica scandal, which, as you may remember, was very revealing in terms of how social media platforms like Meta, and not just Meta, but particularly Meta, um, use and have used and have allowed to be used their users' information for potentially things that we do not want them to do. So hiring Nick Clegg is, sends a, a real message. Um, and he knows the people to talk to and presumably is talking to those people. So, But how do you know when they're showing you the workings that that's not just the tip of the iceberg? You don't. Exactly. Honestly. It, but, but is there anywhere, I mean, have we learned anything from regulating tech over the past however many decades? And it, it, do any of the policymakers actually have access to the technical skills to be able to look under the hood at this? That is such a great question. And I would say that um, my gut instinct is to say no, yeah. because in general, policymakers tend not to be domain experts in certain fields. They, they move around and they do their best and they ask the right questions. I think that it is interesting when you look at the people that tech companies hire and also the people that are moving from tech companies into government. It seems that the needle is shifting and there is a greater degree of technical expertise moving into the right places. Whether it's quick enough is is the, the big question, and, and, and we don't know that yet. Um, I have seen AI used to create bonkers compilations of photographs of me, of friends, of others, and, and other kind of individual applications. What is the wackiest use of AI that you have seen so far in something that actually all of us are only just starting to use at the moment? Um, there are so many. The one that springs to mind is I recently saw somebody had made... I think it was Arnold Schwarzenegger appear in a black and white music video singing a song that he never sang in his <laughs> voice, which was which was quite bizarre. There Weird. is also an AI powered pizza commercial, like a pizza house commercial that's well worth looking up on uh, your favorite uh, video sharing site of choice. And um, that was quite, quite strange. And a lot of the applications for AI that we see, like they are used for comedy a lot. And it is quite funny. Um, it's just you know, to repeat the phrase, tip of the iceberg, I think it applies to that too. 
Okay, Nate Langston, our technology editor, thank you so much for joining us. And Nate, the new series of AI IRL launches on Monday, well worth a watch given the <laughs> fascinating and fast evolving uh, world of this technology. That's it from us for today. If you like the programme, don't forget to subscribe, give it five stars so other people can find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you listen. This episode was produced by James Wilcock and our audio engineer was Marufal Hussain. I'm Lizzie Burden. I'm Stephen Carroll. And I'm Caroline Hepke. We'll be back with more from the Conservative Party conference on Monday. This is Bloomberg. Bloomberg UK Politics. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.